Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 136 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 136 of May 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or in Stitcher, or in iHeartRadio, or in Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is them give you a brief description of what the show's all about? Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 25-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 music fan slash expert slash nerd. Each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist in the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show is talking about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks and do my own personal analysis and the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, million lyrics, and the second part of the show dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio the song was recorded at, who were the studio musicians of the song, whether it be the studio band members or the studio musicians themselves, history behind the song artists that wrote the song and the producer that produced it, and the artists that recorded it, and the history behind the studio that the song was recorded at, where that studio is located at, and the history behind a label the song released on where that label is located at, and the year or month the song was released, and the peep position the song made up originally built by Hot 100 charts when it first came out. All that is in the second part of the show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's song, which was uh, Never Give You Up, and the artist was Jerry Butler. Now, um, I, I'm definitely going to try to make this episode as most interesting as I possibly can, uh, because uh, this particular artist, Jerry Butler, uh, he had a lot of, you know, really, really good stuff happening with his career and then some not so good things. But uh, he was an R&B solo artist in the 60s, and he was probably one of the best out there because he was one of those singers that could emote so well where he could sing a song but then he would almost sound he sound, sound like he was crying when he was singing a lot of his songs because his ability to emote, to emote as a performer was so good that he, it made him one of the best R&B soul singers of that time. And there was nothing tough or hard-edged about him. He wasn't like one of those blues. You know, he wasn't one of those rhythm and blues, you know, soul shatters like Wilson Pickett. He wasn't like... He wasn't a hard-edged soul singer, but the, his ability to emote as a vocalist was just amazing, which put him probably the best in his class. But um, he had a lot of different twists and turns in his career, and one of them was that he was the original lead singer for The Impressions. And yes, that's right. So The, the Impressions were originally this group from you know Tennessee, that's that's where they that's where they're from. They're from Chattanooga, and basically, um, you know, they you know the, it was it was two guys, um, Fred Cash and Sam and Sam. It was actually Sam Gooden, Richard Brooks, and Arthur Brooks, and uh, you know, and and they and they and Richard and Arthur Brooks both left, and they got replaced by Fred Cash, and uh, basically they decided that they wanted to branch out and move out of Tennessee and go to Chicago. 
And, uh, you know, they got signed to VJ Records, actually. And VJ, I'm going to talk a lot about them because that was the first label that Jerry Butler was on. And they were probably the most influential in, in, uh, in in his career because that was the first label where he had all those big hits. And uh, basically, it was a label that was owned by a couple, actually. And uh, the couple was this was in it was it was a label owned by James Bracken and Vivian Carter. And they were the couple that owned the label. And Vivian Carter's uh, husband was actually a guy named Calvin Carter. Actually, it was it was Vivian's brother, but. Uh, Vivian's brother Calvin Carter was the guy who, um, you know, produced and arranged a lot of Jerry Butler's early hit songs. And essentially, what happened was that when Jerry Butler was with the Impressions, uh, they were they, you know, he got signed to VJ because the Impressions were already on VJ, even though they would later on leave VJ and go to ABC Paramount. But through since he was already on VJ through. The impressions he that's how I got signed to VJ as an artist and the main promotion guy on VJ was a guy named Red Schwartz and Red Schwartz was the guy who uh, you know promoted a lot of you know those early impressions records including the first big hit song for your precious love and by the way this is in the late 50s so Jerry Butler was like 17 18 years old when he was singing lead for the impressions and um it was during this time that when he was the lead vocalist for the Impressions, that's where he met uh, Curtis Mayfield, actually. And Curtis Mayfield became uh, the guy that would nurture his career pretty early on, actually. And uh, he was the guy that, you know, co-wrote a lot of, you know, songs with Jerry Butler. And uh, he was the guy that, you know, Jerry would, would either write songs for or with. And he also played guitar in a lot of his early hits. And Calvin Carter supervised all these sessions for VJ, which were all recorded at Universal Recording Studios in Chicago. And uh, essentially what happened was that Jerry Butler decided that he wanted to leave the Impressions and become a solo artist. Now, normally in those situations when a, when a lead singer decides to leave the group and you know, and then someone, you know, and then someone this normally in those situations, it's pretty dramatic because a lot of times there's, there were agreements that were made. And then, you know, there was, there was a lot of, uh, you know, dramatic sort of tension happening between other members in the group and things kind of boil over and go to, and go, go to a tipping point. And then there's a lot, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of fights happening, but with this particular situation, um, you know, there really wasn't any of that. Jerry Butler decided that he wanted to be his own solo artist, and the other group members fully supported it. In fact, Curtis Mayfield did too, and instead of you know uh, going against his solo career, he actually supported it by co-writing a bunch of songs that would wind up becoming uh, Jerry Butler's first big hits. And those hit songs including He Don't Love You Like I Love You, He Will Break Your Heart, and I'm a Telling You, and Find Yourself Another Girl, and some other songs too, like Need to Belong. And uh, he, you know, he be- he became someone that was involved with Jerry Butler's career as a solo artist very early on. And Red Schwartz was the guy who promoted all these records uh, for, you know, Jerry Butler for VJ at the time. And Red Schwartz was the guy, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say like promotion man, 
Uh, Red Schwartz was the guy who essentially, you know, knocked on all the DJ's doors. As soon as a record was done and was pressed, it was ready to go. He would he would basically take all these records, knock on the DJ's doors, and was like, hey, can you play my record? And, you know, he persuaded a lot of DJs to play hits that were being played on the radio at the time. He would, And he persuaded a lot of DJs to add their songs to their playlists, even if they weren't. And he was the guy responsible for making, you know, these records happen. And uh, essentially, Red, Red Swartz was the guy who essentially did all of that. And uh, the other interesting thing about VJ is that it was it was so uh, at the the main the main A&R guy, you know, for uh, for VJ was Ewart Abner. And uh, he, he kind of supervised all the different, um, you know, sessions that were being held through VJ and making sure everything was on budget and everything. Um, but the other interesting thing about VJ Records at the time was that uh, it was also a label that had early distribution for two major, major acts at the time. And those acts were Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons and the Beatles. Yes. So uh, the, you know, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons were signed to VJ pretty early on in 1962. And uh, they were they were on that label for, you know, a couple years between 62, 63. And then they decided to leave VJ because what, what, what happened with them was that they actually mismanaged a lot of their finances. Um, you know, the VJ label, you know, unfortunately, you know, didn't pay a lot of the artists that they were that they were, uh, you know, that they that they were that they were that had on their label. And a lot of their finances were actually gambled away by their uh, their main guy, Ewart Abner, um, you know, he gambled away a lot of that money that was actually owed to the artists that were on VJ. And uh, the Four Seasons sued VJ and says, hey, you know, we want our money from from the records that we recorded for your label. And what happened was that VJ went bankrupt. And uh, and but before that, they were having pretty consistent hits, you know, with Betty Everett and Gene Chandler and also Jerry Butler. But the point I'm trying to make is that, uh, you know, they all eventually left and went to other labels. Um, Gene Chandler went to Constellation and then Jerry Butler went to another went to Mercury. And it was all because, you know, VJ unfortunately mismanaged a lot of their finances and didn't take care of their artists properly. And that ultimately resulted in their downfall as a label. Um, but before that, they were very, very successful. They were based in Chicago, and they started in the mid-50s. And they had some doo-wop groups like the Spaniels and some other groups on there before they you know, started getting into the more pop, rhythm and blues, pop, soul crossover, you know, with the Impressions and, you know, Jerry Butler and, you know, artists like that. Um, but... As far as what happened with the Beatles, uh, initially what happened was that, um, you know, Capital, you know, who was, which was EMI's American counterpoint, you know, to their English label, uh, essentially wasn't interested in distributing the Beatles at first because they didn't believe in them. So what happened was that, uh, you know, EMI was left, you know, with, with this group, but without an American label to distribute them. So what happened was that uh, what they did is that they decided, hey, well, why don't we offer our group, you know, to uh, some independent labels in America and see if anybody wants to distribute them. So they offered two, uh, you know, English acts to see if they can get American distribution to it to an American label. And those and the, and the English act was Frank Ifield and the, and the British group they had was the Beatles. 
And essentially, you know, VJ accepted and, you know, and essentially the Beatles for a very brief period of time were both on VJ, but they're also both on Swan Records. And, uh, you know, and those those early singles by them were on those labels. And it was all because Capitol didn't want to distribute them at first. And then very early in 1964, Capitol changed their mind and decided they wanted to they actually did want to distribute the Beatles after they saw how much they were catching on as a group. And so what happened was that, uh, you know, the, 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 the EMI basically canceled the rest of their contract with VJ and VJ ultimately lost them as a group. And uh, they, I think they lost Frank Ifield too. And basically, uh, that's another reason why the label kind of went downhill. You know, it wasn't just because they were, you know, you know, not taking care of the artists like what happened with the Four Seasons, but they also lost the Beatles as well. And uh, they were they were based in Chicago, but they actually moved to Santa Monica in in the mid '60s, actually. And uh, you know, and again, like the reason why uh, they, you know. They they lost out because, you know, they weren't they they mismanaged a lot of their finances and didn't, uh, you know, take care of a lot of the artists financially, and so that's why a lot of those artists eventually left the label. Uh, but during during uh, Jerry Butler's time at VJ, you know, it was it was really really good actually because he actually wound up recording a song by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, and it was actually Burt Bacharach's first recording session as a producer. Because Calvin Carter had heard the original demo version of the song, uh, you know, because it was it was originally recorded by Dion Warwick, but then Calvin Carter heard it through Florence Greenberg, who Dion Warwick was affiliated with, because he she would eventually get signed to her label Scepter Records. Florence Greenberg passed on the demo to Calvin Carter, who heard it and was like, "Wow, I want I want uh, you know Jerry Butler to record this song." And that song was Make It Easy on Yourself. And that was a song that Jerry Butler recorded, you know, for VJ with Burt Bacharach producing and arranging. It was his first time ever doing that as a songwriter. And uh, yeah, um, during uh, Jerry Butler's early days on VJ, they were actually quite successful because uh, he actually did an early version of Moon River, uh, you know, which had been recorded first by uh actually around the same time as andy williams and it was just when that breakfast at symphony's movie had just come out and that song was just starting to blow up and there was like three other versions in the charts you know around that time there was henny mancini's version and then which i think would come out like a year later and then but uh jerry butler actually was one of the first people to record that song and have a pretty big hit with it um, you know, and again, that was, I believe, a, a, a Universal Recording Studio session in Chicago. And uh, yeah, so during his early career, uh, he definitely had a sound. And the interesting thing about these early Jerry Butler recordings, these songs, is that you can really hear Curtis's influence on a lot of these tracks because he actually not only played guitar for, for Jerry Butler, but he also uh, sang backup for him on a lot of these songs. So what you're hearing is that you're hearing Jerry but uh, Curtis Mayfield play guitar for Jerry Butler, but also hearing him sing backup for him on a lot of these songs in the har harmonies, you know. And this is something that he did, you know, that on a lot of these songs and the impressions oftentimes sang backup for Jerry Butler as well. You know, I think they did that for Need to Belong. And, uh, you know, again, like, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, Curtis Mayfield's influence was felt on Jerry Butler's music, even though they decided to leave AJ Records and ultimately go to ABC Paramount, 
where uh you know he you know you know jerry where curtis mayfield had way more creative control over you know his songs and uh basically he became the main guy you know who's you know calling all the shots for those impression sessions but while he was doing that he was also helping out jerry butler too you know writing songs for him and uh you know uh, also singing backup form playing guitar in his songs and um one other cool thing to keep in mind is that along with, uh, you know, Jerry Butler being at the si- on label at the same time as the Four Seasons and the Beatles, uh, he also co-wrote a song with Otis Redding. That's right. So in the mid-60s, I want to say 1965, um, you know, Jerry Butler and Otis Redding were both on tour together. And one night they actually spent in a, in a hotel room. They were, or I think I'm pretty sure it was a motel room. Uh, they were they were there together and they were just you know hanging out and spending the night. And one day they went in that night they decided to write a song together as a, as a, as a, as a duo. And that song was called "I've Been Loving You Too Long," which became a pretty decent sized R and B hit for Otis Redding and pretty good top forty pop hit for him as well. Um, but yeah, so that was a song that uh, Otis Redding wrote with Jerry Butler, and uh, essentially that was that was a tune that um, you know was was a, was a pretty big hit for him. And Jerry Butler co-wrote the song with him, and this was all when he was kind of in a transitional point because he you know didn't want to stay with uh, VJ for long because they were about to go bankrupt. And, you know, and it was, you know, and a lot of the, the A&R guys that were, you know, with were with VJ before, like Bill Shepard and a couple of other people, you know, they all decided to leave the label. And uh, essentially, you know, that, you know, VJ was going, was on its way out. And during that time, uh, he co-wrote that song with Otis Redding, which became one of his biggest hit songs. Okay, so let's now talk about the history behind uh, Never Give You Up, actually. Because uh, this was b- uh, pretty much a comeback hit. Well, not really, because, I mean, he did have one more hit before this. But this established a whole new sound for Jerry Butler because he was working with a completely different music group of musicians that he hadn't worked with before, actually. And a lot of the, the sound that uh, was being developed with Jerry Butler at this time was actually... Um, you know the Philly sound, which I've which I've talked about a few times on my podcast before, which was you know had elements. It was it was it was an interesting sound because it had elements of classical music, but it was also kind of funky. But it also was very much uh, super laid back, you know, for the most part. But at the same time, there were some really tasty groups happening with uh you know with um with you know the the sound of Philadelphia and. Those elements of classical music included the Wagnerian horns that they used and the strings, you know, and some and some of that, you know, that was that was creeping in there along with, um, you know, some other things as well. Um, but essentially, when uh, Jerry Butler recorded "Never Give You Up," he switched over from VJ to Mercury, and the one of the first successful producers that he worked with when he was at uh, Mercury was Jerry Ross. And Jerry Ross was a guy like I like I like I've mentioned before. He was a uh, songwriter and he was also um, a producer, um, you know. And at the time in the early '60s, he was based in Philadelphia and he had recorded a song by a Philadelphia doo-wop group called the Dream Lovers. And the song was "When We Get Married." 
And that's and the Dream Lovers were the same doo-wop group that backed up all the big Cameo Parkway hit artists like Bobby Rydell, Chubby Checker, uh, and Dee Dee Sharp. Uh, they were the group that sang backup on basically all of those hit records that came out of Cameo Parkway. And, uh, you know, he at the time, he had just became a head of A&R for uh, uh, Mercury Records, and he became a producer that actually got uh, signed um, you know, to Mercury because of Shelby Singleton, who was president of the company, uh, you know, he he lured him into the, you know, to the company as a, as a producer. And it was interesting because he at the time, you know, he was producing, uh, you know, mostly Philly groups. But at the same time, you know, he was also he produced a Chicago, another Chicago group called Spanky and Our Gang. But uh, he he at the time was that was that was one of the top a and R guy slash producers that was that was a recording for Mercury at that time, and uh, he basically produced Keys ninety eight point six, Apple Peaches Pumpkin Pie by Jane and Techniques, um, Bobby Head Sunny, and also Spanky and R Gang. Someday will never be the same. All huge hits for the Mercury label at that time. I think all pretty much all of them made the top ten, and uh, you know they were very very big hits. And uh, he recorded these songs with uh, New York studio musicians and I've and I've talked about that on my podcast before um you know with Jerry Ross you know recording with you know you know Philadelphia guys with a mix of Philadelphia and New York studio musicians because um you know the 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 Cameo Parkway record label went out of you know basically got sold and you know the main guys who were with Cameo Parkway weren't with them anymore so a lot of those musicians that were playing on Cameo Parkway sessions ultimately left you know Philadelphia and went to New York and uh, essentially, um, you know, through Jerry Ross is basically how uh, Jerry Butler got to work with Kenny Gamble and Huff, who were his main producers after he stopped working with Jerry Ross. Um, you know, J- Jerry Ross had essentially discovered Kenny Gamble when he was in Philadelphia at the time. And uh, he basically uh, signed him to a, a, a writing uh, publishing contract. And through and and basically it was through Jerry Ross is how Kenny Gamble got, uh, you know, introduced to Leon Huff, and they all wrote a song together, which was one of the first songs that, uh, you know, that they that you know that that Jerry Butler recorded through this whole you know collaboration thing, which was called "I'm Gonna Make You Love Me," and uh, you know, and Jerry Butler did do an early version of that, along with Dee Dee Warwick and Madeline Bell and a couple of other people. Um, you know, and Jane the Techniques, they all recorded earlier versions. I'm gonna make you love me before Diana Ross and the Supremes and Temptations recorded it in late 1968. Um, so yeah, so that was one of the first songs that they did, and uh, essentially, um, through Jerry Ross is how you know Kenny Gamble and Huff started working together, and then that's and then Jerry Ross ultimately introduced Jerry Butler to Kenny Gamble and Huff. And they became, you know, the, you know, his main producers. And uh, essentially uh, through that is when they started to write songs together. And essentially uh, the collaboration between Gamble and Huff and, and uh, Jerry Butler, basically uh, Jerry, Jerry and Kenny would basically write the lyrics to these songs and Leon would write the music and he would write these songs on piano, essentially. And uh, it's interesting because... Uh, you know, Kenny Gamble, Leon Huff were free, free, freelance guys, so they weren't necessarily tied to one specific label. 
um, you know, because essentially during it during that time, uh, you know, they 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 had uh, they had produced for a tiny little independent label uh, for the Soul Survivors. Uh, that song was "Expressway to Your Heart," but then, you know, they you know they eventually became uh, you know writers and producers for Mercury Records, and uh, and they also you know also wrote and produced for Atlantic Records too with Archie Bell and the Drells. And I can't stop dancing, and uh, there's going to be a showdown, and uh, songs like that. Um, you know, he basically, you know, those two guys essentially became both writers and producers for both Atlantic and Mercury at the exact same time. And it's interesting because um, at this time, you know, the whole Philly sound was being developed in Philadelphia because these guys they had spent some time in New York, but they decided they wanted to go back to Philly. And, uh, you know, essentially, um, you know, Kenny Gamble and Huff, you know, went back to Philadelphia. But at the time, they weren't really producing songs at the legendary Sigma Sound Studios yet. Um, they actually were uh, this this particular song, Never Give You Up by Jared Butler, was actually recorded at Cameo Parkway Studios in Philly. And at the time, it was still being used um, you know, uh, it, the studio was still was still kind of being used, even though Sigma Sound Studios would be the main studio that Tom Bell and Kenny Gamble and Huff would use. And essentially, um, uh, you know, those Kenny Gamble and Huff became the main producers for Jerry Butler and, and writers, too. And they used the musicians that they used on these songs with guys like, you know, MFSB and like like I said before, mother, mother, father and sister, brother. And those are the guys who would later play on, you know, records for people like the Spinners and Stylistics and, uh, you know, Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes and, uh, you know, the Three Degrees and, you know, groups like that. Well, these guys played with Jerry Butler first before any anybody else, really. And they also played for the Delphonics and the Intruders, too. But Jerry Butler was in that mix as far as some of the first, uh, you know, musicians that they played with or singers that they played with. And uh, again, like the, the musicians on Never Give You Up were actually Norm Harris and Bobby Eli on guitar, Ronnie Baker on bass, Earl Young on drums, and Leon Huff on piano and Vince Montana on vibes. And it was, again, it was, they started out on four track actually when they were recording at Cameo Parkway, but then they went actually quickly moved over to eight track. Uh, so in the early days, this, you know, I think what happened with this particular song also is that. Uh, you know, that it was recorded twice. And I, I was reading Jerry Butler's book and he was saying that a lot, they would oftentimes re-record the same song multiple different times until they were until they were happy with a specific version of the song that they wanted to use. And uh, and this happened a bunch of different times because these guys were perfectionists. They wanted to make sure that every single note was right and everything was good. And if something if there's something there they didn't like, they would oftentimes re-record the song multiple different times. And this is one of the songs that was, I think there was another recorded version of it before it got, uh, before it got uh, you know, before the hit version. But the hit version was cut at Cami Parkway Studios. Also, the arranger of the song was Bobby Martin, and the engineer was a guy named Joe Tarsha, who had previously engineered for Cameo, Par uh, Cameo Parkway Records, engineering for you know artists like Bobby Rydell, Dee Dee Sharp, The Orleans, Chubby Checker, and then you know basically what happened was that uh, you know he became the main engineer for uh, this particular uh, you know the guy that you know who who they used for um, uh, Cameo for. Uh, Sigma Sound, and he became the, eng the engineer, you know, for that label, 
and Sigma Sound was you know was a studio that you know where all the all the major camera uh, you know Philadelphia records were being made you know with these exact same musicians Norm Harris, Poppy Eli, T.J. Tindall on guitar, um, you know uh, you know Harold Ivory Williams and Leon Huff on piano, and uh, you know also uh, Ronnie Baker on bass and uh, Earl Young on drums and Carl Chambers was also the drummer too that they used on a lot of these records as well. And these were the main guys um, on these sessions for Philly at the time. And um, and basically, when when uh, Ken and Gamble and Huff started producing for Jerry Butler, they had a whole string of hits. I mean, they didn't just have Never Give You Up, but they also had Hey, Western Union Man, Only the Strong Survive, and then Moody Woman, and they had What's the Use of Breaking Up, and all these songs are really, really well in the pop charts and the R&B charts, too. So these are big hits on both sides. And, uh, you know, and they kind of kickstarted things for Gamble and Huff along with the Intruders, you know, who were they also producing at the same time with Cowboys to Girl in Love is like a baseball game, you know. So essentially, and, you know, this this kind of helped keep the ball rolling for Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, which just started as both writers and producers, their first production that they ever did. And the first song, you know, the first major hit song they wrote, which was Express Pretty Heart by the Soul Survivors, which, by the way, was also recorded at Camden Parkway Studios in Philly. So, um, you know, again, like, you know, they, they, they used that in the studio at that time, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, before uh, they were, they moved everything over to Sigma Sound. So, because Sigma Sound Studios was originally Rico Art Studios, but then, you know, the studio got renamed Sigma Sound. Um, so, yeah. So, um, Jerry Butler continued to have hits into the 70s with uh, Brenda Lee Egger with a song called Ain't Misunderstanding Mellow. And uh, basically that that became a pretty big hit with him in the 70s. And then he continued on into the 80s and, you know, and, and into the 80s. And he actually wound up on, on the Motown label at some point, too. But then uh, recently he became a politician and he, you know, he basically started he I think I think he actually ran for a couple couple things for office in a, in a, in Chicago and won a couple of those positions but um, hopefully he'll get back on you know music and performing soon but um, those are those are just some interesting things uh, you know for you know for the history of Jerry Butler and uh, essentially that that's that's his whole story and also if you're wondering exactly, okay, so how influential was this whole Philly sound that came out of the late 60s, early 70s? How influential is that sound with today's music? Well, um, Bruno Mars, Silk, Silk Sonic, and Anderson Pock just came out with a huge number one hit recently, um, you know, called Leave the Door Open. And if you listen closely to that song, it's a total 100% tribute to that Philly sound. It totally 100% you know, is 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 a, is a one is a total one hundred like, like total like they 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 basically listen to all those Philly soul records late sixties and early seventies and decide they want to create their own unique original unique version of that which has a little bit of today's sound as well, and that's what they did for like, the door open and, and that song just went to number one in the Billboard Hot one hundred charts so that proves that kind of sound could still get uh, used today for the most part. So that concludes part two of episode number 136 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you found out some really cool and interesting facts about Jerry Butler and you had no idea exactly, um, you know, anything about him, but you found out some cool stuff about him, like, whoa, that's awesome. I did not know that. 
Uh, if you're like that, uh, please email me at samltplayicloud.com. You can also reach out to me on Instagram, uh, oldies. You know, especially if you're a millennial and you don't know anything about Jared Butler and learning about him for the first time through me, I would love it if you could uh, please email me and let me know, uh, you know, if you learned some cool stuff about him and you didn't really know too much about him. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, so it's really cool that he was on the same label as the Beatles and, you know, Curtis Mayfield mentioned him early on and, uh, you know, Curtis Mayfield later went on to record Superfly and all his major hits for, you know, as a solo artist as well as forming some publishing company, Curtin Music. Um, that's really cool. But yeah, so you can also check out, uh, my three singles that are out now, Keeper in My Pack Pocket. She said no in Turquoise Apricot. The links to those are in the description of this episode of this podcast, along with a really cool interview I did recently with the Honk Magazine. Would love to if you can check those out. Um, and if you uh, and if you'd like to uh, let me know what you think of those songs, definitely, uh, you know, let me know. I love to hear what your your thoughts on these songs and if they make any impact on you in your life whatsoever. If you can relate to them in some way. You know, and if you love the sound of these songs and if you're a millennial, definitely let me know. Email me at samltboyagla.com or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, uh, Harold Oldies. Um, you can also check, uh, you can also pre-save an upcoming EP, which comes out at the end of this month on the 28th. Um, you know, link to that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. I'd love it if you can do that, um, you know, because I definitely want to get people excited about um, you know, this EP that's coming out at the end of this month, including the songs that are already, plus four new ones that no one's heard yet. Um, yeah, so, I mean, these songs are definitely a good representation of who I am as an artist and, you know, uh, where I come from musically and also, you know, my skills as a musician, too, because I play all the, most instruments on these songs. So, yeah, so love if you can check those out. Also, you can check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast or you'll be able to find... All the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including some of the ones I mentioned in interview episodes. And uh, if you would like to uh, let me know what you think of those songs, or if you'd like to suggest to me some new songs that I haven't talked about yet on my podcast I will, that, I, that I should do next, uh, please email me at samltwilliacloud.com, or you can also reach out to me on Instagram, iheartoldies, and let me know what you think of those songs and those playlists, or... If you want to suggest me some new stuff that I haven't done yet, please go do that after listening to this playlist. Um, you can also, uh, what, another thing you can do is you can check out the official Redbubble merch store for this podcast. There you'll be able to find the official uh, Redbubble uh, you know, design that I had someone else create. And basically, it's a, it's a really cool uh, merch uh, items. It's a really cool design that is specific to this podcast. And it's the catchphrase I say at the end of every episode. And keep on checking today. Font the name of my podcast on the bottom. Uh, we'll love it if you guys could check that out. And you can uh, email me, you know, if, what you think of the logo itself and the prices of each item store. Because I'd love some feedback on uh, you know the, the 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 store itself because I can definitely adjust those prices if they're too high, um, but I also love to know what you think of the, the um, you know of the logo itself if you love it or hate it because um, you know I I don't think I'm gonna change it I think I'm gonna keep it the way it is right now because uh, you know I think it's basically gonna I, I mean I might modify it a little bit but I think it's gonna stay the way it is because it looks really cool and it still fits with this podcast but yeah so. Um, Definitely let me know what you think of that logo. And uh, also, 
check out my singles that are right now. Um, you know, the links to those in the description of this episode's podcast. And by the way, those those uh those links, you know, will take you to the singles and wherever you're streaming music at. You know, if you don't have Spotify, that's okay because those links will take you to a couple of different other places where you can find the stream those songs. Uh, you know, so if you don't have Spotify, you can always uh, find them in other places too. But yeah, it's under my name. It's under my stage name, Sam L. Williams. And also, follow me on Spotify too, because if you follow me on Spotify, you'll actually get notified. Uh, you know, when my songs, you know, when my EP gets released. So if you go do that, um, you can, if you, if you do have Spotify, you can follow me on there and you can also get updated when, um, I, when my EP comes out. Cause if you follow me on Spotify, the, the EP will come out on your release radar, you know, uh, as far as new releases. So please go do that. And, uh, yeah, so I really, really, really appreciate that. And again, my new stage team is Sam Mel Williams and, uh, and by the way, so I'm Sam Williams, and thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, please keep things groovy.